Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Anthony Scaramucci. This was recorded live in the West End at the Vaudeville Theatre. Thank you to all of you who came because the atmosphere was out of this world. I mean, the atmosphere is always good, but there are certain nights where there's that extra level there. And I think really only the Tony Blair night and the Christmas specials, but this was something else. People knew they were going to see something very, very special. I don't think they knew or perhaps that you currently appreciate what you're about to hear, because it's everything you would expect from the Mooch. It's really funny. His vocabulary and his personality and his charisma really come through. But it's also very thoughtful. It's also very heartfelt. It's also very honest. And there are some phenomenal bits in this. And as always, the perfect interview is when you get those really funny moments. And he's got phenomenal comedic instincts. But also when you do get incredible insight and the story about him and Steve Bannon before the mooch gets appointed I don't think he's told anywhere else um so there's there's exclusives throughout this but the way he describes Trump the atmosphere inside the White House um what it was like to work there the dynamics the well we come on to topical stuff about Steve Bannon and what his stuff on that is incredible so I won't talk any more about what you're about to hear because I think you're probably going to get a bit more than even you were you know were hoping for because it's just incredible um don't forget you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with your encounters places you've seen politicians that are slightly out of the ordinary I mean if anyone went to the pub after the show <laughs> they'll have seen Anthony Scaramucci in there which you could see people in there going it's Anthony Scaramucci uh, and people were coming up to him I mean it was incredible really um so, this is out of this world. Just, if you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that a particular politician pops up in these mentions more than anyone else. Jamie's been in touch. He said, Matt, I keep meaning to email the show about my own encounters with Neil Kinnock. It's always Neil Kinnock. Don't forget you can see Neil Kinnock on the 10th of January at the uh, Duchess Theatre. Tickets at mattford.com slash live. He says, anyway, he was a politics student in Cardiff in the early noughties. And... Um, <laughs> One Wednesday, I got very excited to spot Neil Kinnock browsing our suits. I started whispering to colleagues about it, and none of them knew who he was. And he does, to be fair, in brackets, put the word sigh. Absolutely right. I mean, I mean, come on. Anyway, he says, so I insisted on serving him when he came to pay for his suit. It was a grey half-price bargain for about 90 quid. This was the time he was an EU commissioner. I tell you what, good on him for liking a bargain. I waited until he gave me his credit card to pay, just to double-check it was actually him before I said anything. When he handed me his card with Mr. N. Kinnock on it, I spoke up. I said, Are you busy at the moment, Mr. Kinnock? To which he replied, Oh, yes, boy. I'm like a rat on a skateboard. <laughs> Amazing. Well, 
What's the weirdest thing a politician has said to you? It doesn't have to be just uh, mundane places you've seen them anymore. Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget the live shows. I mean, I know that a lot of you enjoy listening to the podcast. There really is no substitute for being there. And anyone who's... I've had so many messages already about this episode from hundreds of people who were there last night. Um... There is a real, when you're in the room, you know, when it's something like Anthony Scaramucci, I mean, any of my guests, when you're in the room with people who've held great offices of state, who've led political parties, there is a different atmosphere that you see, you know, there's a, there's a thrill. And I guess that's at the heart of this show is a lot of people never get to see a politician live. They certainly don't get to see them be informal and, and funny and things like that. So uh, on Monday, the 6th of December, my guest is Jeremy Hunt, the man who almost became Prime Minister not that long ago, a man who still might uh, get the keys to number 10, former Foreign Secretary, former Health Secretary, Chair of the Health and Social Care Committee, and of course their report into the government's handling of COVID, um, really one of the most effective pieces of uh, of uh, scrutiny that the government has faced. So Jeremy Hunt on the 6th of December, on Monday the 20th of December, it is the Christmas special with MP4, Rosanna Allen Khan and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And on the 10th of January, the man himself, the man who everyone apparently sees all around the country every day, Neil Kinnock, and more guests to be announced for next year. You can get tickets for all those shows at mattford.com slash live. On to today's main event. This really is special. Um, you can hear actually on the stand-up section at the start, just the atmosphere was superb. People were really excited to see the mooch. Of course, for me, it's always a treat getting to do stand-up in, in such a beautiful venue, in such a wonderful, in front of such a wonderful crowd. So we start with the comedy and then on to the interview with the man who was Donald Trump's Director of Communications at the White House for 11 fateful days, Anthony Scaramucci. It's a classic. Enjoy. Have you been here before? Yay. Welcome back, regulars. Give me a cheer. This is your first political party. Yay. Amazing newcomers. Fantastic. Well, we have a very, very special guest tonight. And of course, it has been uh, a fantastic week in politics. You may have seen Boris Johnson's show stopping speech today. <laughs> CBI, one of the funniest. I mean, I mean, I've been to. You basically, if you haven't seen this, he's giving a speech to the Confederation of British Industry. Very important group of people. And. Uh, Loses his way in his speech, and then at one point he goes, Well, I, 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 I've been to uh, the, uh, well, I've been to Pepper Pig World. <laughs> and, uh, as I'm sure we all have. Uh, it's one of my favourite places. I can't think of more perfect places. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of mums there, you pervert. <laughs> and of course, it's full of pigs, isn't it? So, oh, uh, piggies, yeah, uh, future sausages. Absolutely fucking. At what point? This is the thing. This is where he's at his worst because he's trying to do the levity thing. Like, I've been big book. Like, anyone's going to be impressed. And it's the sort of thing a six year old would say on a Monday after a weekend at school. <laughs> Not a prime minister addressing the Confederation of British Industry. Oh, I, I, and I did the lovely painting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but at one point he says, uh, Peppa Pig, a great British success story, no white or civil servant would have come up with Peppa Pig. You're like, yeah, I, I don't think that's the insult you think it is. 
compromising would that be? Our financial institutions have been hacked by the Russians. How many have been affected? I don't know, but I have drawn a cartoon pig. <laughs> Who goes to a theme park and tries to take it as a lesson against the public sector? It's the saddest thing. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm Winter Wonderland. Sausages. And what? Steins of love. The whole time I was there, I thought, you know, you would never get that at the state primary school. There's an amazing bit. If you haven't seen it, you can just find it on Twitter where he loses. He hasn't even numbered his pages, right? So he just loses his way at the speech. And he just, for 30 seconds, rifles through these papers and just goes, oh, forgive me. Forgive me. Oh, oh, forgive me. Uh, words, obviously, he's never uttered to any wife or child. <laughs> nice of them to hear them somehow, though. That was good. He also said of the Owen pa Oh, my God, the Owen Patterson. The all the slee stuff has been incredible. Because I'm one of those people that's like, look, not all Conservatives, most politicians are good, and, you know, Conservatives just have a different view of the world, and, God, you can't just call them corrupt. That's stupid. And it's like... It turns out they were. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Owen Patterson apparently said, Boris under a bit of pressure, he went to a meeting of the backbench group, the 1922 community. Yeah, I, I do accept that on a, on a clear day I, I crashed the car into a ditch. Um, which I guess is the, as close to an apology as you're going to get. But for me, it doesn't really capture the full scale of the disaster. Oh, I crashed the car. And really, that is the start of the story, isn't it? I, I do have to act in the I did. I, I crashed the car into the ditch, and then I, I, I did, well, well, well I, I said on fire, yes. and, then, and then when the fire crew arrived, I, I, I got my cock out and said, put it out with this. And, uh, <laughs> talking about never going to join Pepper Big World, though. <laughs> but uh, one Tory MP, a guy called Chris Waterford, uh, has admitted that when he saw Rowan Patterson, uh, this is, brace yourself for this, to his face, called him a cunt. <laughs> and uh, he was asked by Times Radio if it was true. He said, yes, yes, and, and the, the reason was um, a fair amount of anger and codeine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, sort of trying to use the medical excuse, but also like, I was just really angry. I don't think the medication had that much to do with it, mate. Now, I was on a lot of ibuprofen at the time, and he is a cunt. <laughs> Keir Starmer, I would say the last week or two, has become a lot more muscular in his language and the way he said things. Boris Johnson is a coward. The government was very important. Very important. The government was corrupt. Totally corrupt. Always sort of repeats himself. Just, just say, government, very important. Very important. Government's corrupt. Plus a coward. Very important. <laughs> with a private no, it's very important. I will not give way. No one's asking you to. I will not. <laughs> it's me and you here, man. I'll come to that in a minute. Come to that in a minute. Very important. <laughs> Call him a coward in the House of Commons. Actually, you know, that's, that's pretty tough stuff in the House of Commons. And uh, the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, made him retract it. He said, uh, difference to you, Mr. Speaker, I retract it, but the Prime Minister is no leader. <laughs> no one made that noise. I was slightly disappointed by that. Because what's cool about that is you attract it, it basically wipes the slate clean. You just insult him every week. I want him to get really tough with that. I come to something private. It's very important. I'd say this to the other Say this to the Prime Minister. Very important. We'll continue to hold him to account for speaking. If he doesn't like it, I'll tell him this. Very important. He can suck <laughs> my fucking dick. <laughs> <laughs>
to a different series to speak out of a tractor. <laughs> but I bet he's got a small cock. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming out, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I often am very excited to interview my guests, but tonight, this is very, very special. I'm sure when you bought a ticket, you thought, is he really going to show up? <laughs> but I did. <laughs> and it's a pleasure to see you all. But tonight's guest is someone I have interviewed before uh, on TV and on the podcast, but never in person at a political party night. I'm absolutely delighted that he's here. He is someone who is obviously very well known around the globe. When you get to know him, you totally understand why he's such a massive star. He really needs no other introduction. He's one of the most famous political advisors of all time, one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. Please give a huge British welcome for Anthony Scaramucci! Thank you, guys. That, that introduction was almost as long as my White House career. <laughs> a couple more minutes, it would have been over. Go ahead. It's so good to see you. It's great to be here, man. Thank you for having me. And firstly, what, what on earth are you drinking? So this is a Negroni. Salud, guys. Do they sell them there? No? What are you, you drinking? You drink, that's I'm vodka in there? No, it's just water. After seeing you on Saturday night, I'm sure it's water. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mooch, what on earth is going on in America? <laughs> I don't know. You don't have a couch here. I could lay down on a couch. I could tell you the whole thing. But, I mean, we got to... You're allowed to curse on the stage? Or Absolutely. Because I don't know how to do anything else. Uh, we have a shit show going on in the United States. We have um, polarization. We have one party that's decided that it's going to uh, break the rules to stay in power. And so weirdly about the US, it's almost the tyranny of the minority now. And so if you look at the Republican Party on the landscape, they are less in terms of the registration, they're less in terms of their membership, but they are working tirelessly to redraw the voting maps to stay in power. And so at the same time that that's going on, uh, you've got some radical lefties as well. And I think that's, you know, I grew up in the sort of blue collar uh, middle class. I think the radical left, the blue collar middle class finds them tiresome. So they would be liberal, but they don't want to be radical woke liberal. And so you've got that, mix that together, Matt, and you have a catastrophe, a shit show, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not too dissimilar to, <laughs> to what's gone on here. Um, but so how do you feel about that then? Obviously you worked for a Republican president for a bit. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you have a sort of... Hey, listen, it, it was 954,000 seconds, okay? Sometimes I, sometimes I have to tell my therapist that. It makes me feel a little bit better. But do you feel, you know, some people when they work for a party or for a politician, they still carry it in their heart somewhere. They feel a sense of sadness that a party or a movement goes in a particular way. How do you feel about the Republican Party now? So, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, working class family. And so there's uh, my dad, I was talking about this at dinner. My dad was a Republican because the union that he worked for was controlled by the Republican Party. So I remember when I signed up and registered to vote, I turned to my pop, I said, am I a Democrat or Republican? He said, oh no, you're, you're a Republican. That was very unique, because if you really study American labor, most labor 
was tied to the Democrats. So I grew up as a Republican, but I was always a moderate Republican. And I know this is hard to believe, and I'm not trying to revise history because of what happened, but I knew Trump for a very long time. I had worked at CNBC as a uh, you know, business pundit on the business channel when Trump was at NBC uh, working on The Apprentice. And so we had done a number of parties together, social gatherings and stuff like that. You know, this guy went to Elton John's wedding. Okay, so he wasn't, he wasn't as wack. When you put it like that. No, but I mean, he went from Elton John's wedding to like tiki torches and pitchforks and white supremacy. I mean, pretty big move. You know? so, so when you watched his evolution politically, somebody said to me, you know, you and I were both in Glasgow over the weekend. Somebody said to me, well, you had to know, you know, Trump was a New Yorker. He was always a bad guy and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like looking at him going, okay, yeah. But did you really know he was going to go full KKK? That I did not know. I didn't see that coming because he was a New Yorker. You know, he was, you know, pro-choice before he was against it. All of that stupid nonsense. You know, uh, one of the worst things that happened to me when I was in the White House is I'm his comms director, and this was on a Wednesday. The reason why I know it was a Wednesday, I was only there for one Wednesday. That's all. <laughs> Sitting there with the phone in his hand, right? I'm just telling you this, right? And he and he's tweeting out that he's going to abolish the transgender uh, for the military. As I walk into the Oval Office, and he's like, "What, what did you think of the tweet?" And I'm like, "Was that an impression? Was it? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, not going to be able to do it as well as you, but I mean, you know, you could do it." Hey, you, what? I want to ask you. Anything no, no, don't do it. Works. I'll break out of the Please, Mr. President, please don't fire me again. I don't think I could. I don't think I could take it. But I'm, I'm, I'm in What do you think of this tweet, Anthony? I need your... Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And I'm like, what tweet? Now, now I'm looking at my phone, and in a tweet, he's abolishing a 25-year policy on... That's the power of Twitter. Yeah. Oh, my God. If you, if you go with the wig, I'm going to need CPR up here. I won't be able to take it. But, you know, I mean, so now you're looking at him over the Resolute desk. What do you think? Is your... I said, well, did you, did you talk to Jim about it, like you know, Secretary Mattis? And he's like, no, why, why would I have to talk to Secretary I'm the president, I get to do what I want. I'm like, well, you know, they got 25 years of sedimentary history in that policy, you know, and, and you know, thankfully, when it got to the Pentagon, they ignored it, and the policy <laughs> stayed the same, but I mean, this is what the guy was doing, you know, it was, it was crazy, you know. So, when he asked you to do the job, yeah. What's your initial, obviously you say yes, but are you kind of humbled? Are you overawed that you're going to get to serve your country inside the highest office in the land? So there's a little bit of a backstory, actually. So I'll take you guys to election night. Time for a quick story, right? Yeah. So it's election night. It's Trump Tower, 26th floor. I'll set the scene for you. It's 6 p.m. I pop into his office. He's sitting behind his desk. He says, what are you doing tomorrow? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? What am I doing tomorrow? He says, well, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, what do you mean? I don't know. Are we winning or losing? He says, oh, I know what I'm doing. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I just had the plane moved from LaGuardia Airport to JFK. And because you can't fly internationally from LaGuardia. And so he fueled the plane and he was heading to Scotland to go golf. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we're going to get our asses kicked and let her have her day in the sun. That's exactly how the guy talks. He goes, I'm going to leave the country for a week. I'm going to go play golf, bring Melania with me. 
let her have her day in the sun. That was 6 p.m. on election night. Okay, so he did not think he was winning. None of us thought he was winning. At 10.30, I mean, this guy's completely nuts now, and he was getting nuttier by the day. I'm on the couch with Rudy Giuliani, okay? We're looking, we're looking at a screen, and he turns to me, and he says, Trump's going to win. And I said, why are you saying that, Mayor? He said, you see those two counties right there in Florida? They have not reported yet, but those are white-collar counties. They're going to vote for Republican, and they're going to flip Florida and now I'm looking at my phone. The New York Times had this like needle for percentages. And as the results were coming in, the needle was moving towards Trump. And so I picked up the phone. I called Trump's cell phone. I got him on. I picked up right away. I said, Anthony, can you, can you fucking believe this? This is out there. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, you're going to be the president of the United States. I said, but let me tell you something. The market's down 600. <laughs> and they're scared shit. You better put something in that speech that's reassuring to the market. Jared, Jared, put something in the speech to reassure the market. I gotta go. Can you fucking believe this? And, he up the and then Rudy said to me, "What did he say?" He said, "Could you fucking believe this?" And then Rudy looked at me, "No, I can't believe it." And then obviously Hillary couldn't believe it. I mean, she was on. I mean, she was probably having a cardiac arrest. And then, of course, she didn't capitulate until the next day. But you know what? At least she capitulated. It's not like Trump with the stupid bullshit with the lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, come on. I mean, absolutely ridiculous what he did. But very predictable, knowing his personality. But so now, he turns to me. The next day, none of us have slept. We're back in his office. I had done television that morning. And he said, okay, you have to come work for me. And I said, you know, I, I really don't want to come work for you. I've got a, I was hosting a television show. I had my own hedge fund business. And I didn't want to work for him. I said, you know, I really don't want to go work for you. What I left out was that my wife hates you almost as much as Melania hates you. Almost, right there. So I left that out at that moment. And I said, but I really don't want to work for you. And then he did what he typically does, okay? He announced on that Friday that I was on his transition team. So I'm literally sitting in a television studio, and the anchor looks at me and says, well, congratulations. And I'm like, uh-oh, what, for what? Well, you've just been named the president's transition team. That is totally him. I call him up. So are you going to not even tell me or not? You've got to come and work for me. Okay? And then Reince Priebus didn't like that very much, so he blocked that job. And then this is how stupid I am. Okay? Once he blocked that job, I got my pride involved. I said, who the hell is Reince Priebus? I think I called him Rancid Penis probably twice. <laughs> and I, I picked up the phone, I called Trump. So this was highbrow stuff. Yeah, highbrow. <laughs> this is about as highbrow as you get. Okay, I got on the phone with the president-elect of the United States. This is so surreal. I said, this guy, Rancid Penis, is an asshole. I'm <laughs> and I said, someday you're going to want to get rid of him. And when you do call me, I'll, come to, I'll take care of it for you. Okay? I included Bannon in that too, who, by the way, is the worst person you could ever meet. I mean, you know, I mean, you guys are Europeans, so you stop believing in God, but do you guys want to know why I still believe in God? Can I tell them why? Yeah. Steve Bannon is smart, he's well read, he's charismatic, believe it or not, okay? But God made him so motherfucking ugly to save the civilization from Steve Bannon. I'm just letting you know. Okay? I mean, he's so dressed in contemporary hobo. He looks like an alcoholic, you know what I mean? I mean, thank God. Okay, because this guy would have been a systemic danger to our society. So now, Trump, Trump calls me. He calls me. He says, you were right about these two guys. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, 
what do you mean, what am I doing? He says, well, I would like you to come visit me and uh, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. I said, what time? He says, well, why don't you come at four o'clock? Ivanka will meet you and you know, let's have a conversation. Okay, guys, he's the President of the United States. Okay, I grew up in a blue collar family. And so I was like, this is the President of the United States. So I went. My wife did not want me to go. Again, hates him almost as much as Melania. Did not want me to go, super pissed. So I went. And <laughs> I gotta own that shit for the rest of my life. And you guys are a lot cheaper than my therapist, so listen to the rest of the story. So now I, I walk through the Oval Office into the study. And there he is, okay, and he's got his bifocals on. Now, he does not like letting people see him with his bifocals on. Okay. Trump. Trump. He's got his bifocals on, he's reading the paper, and you know he can barely read, right? You know that, right? So he's looking at the pictures in the paper. And he's, he's, got, the, he's got the telly on, right? He's going through the television. And he looks at me, he says, okay, sit down. He goes, you were totally right. Uh, these guys are assholes, and I want you to come work for me. And I said, okay, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, you're gonna have to be here in the West Wing, which is a very small office. Okay, there's a very small area, and most of the president's staff is in the old executive office building. But I want you here in the West Wing. I said, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, hold on a second. He calls White House Operations. And he says, are there any offices available in the West Wing? And the guy says, yeah. He says, the communications director's office is available. You fired Dub Key three months ago. You never replaced him. He hangs up the phone. He says, you're going to be the communications director. <laughs> Dude, I'm a hedge fund manager that fucking plays the television pundit. I can't be the communications director. He said, no, 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 relax. You'll be totally fine. We'll work together. They're going to be down the hall. You're going to be the communications director. You guys can believe this or not. He looks at me and goes, you know, I'm a little tired. We make the announcement right now, but I'm a little tired. Can you come back at 10 a.m.? And I said, sure, I'll come back at 10 a.m. And believe it or not, I flew back to New York. Okay, did not go over well at home that I was going to be the communications director. <laughs> and I took the 6 a.m. shuttle flight back to uh, Washington in the interregnum. The White House operations guy notified Priebus that I was coming in to be the comms director. He went crazy. He was calling me nonstop. Then he was leaking to the press that there's no way that I'm going to be the comms director. And then the next morning, I flew back to uh, Washington. I'm at the Trump International Hotel, the shit house, by the way, but that's where I am. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with a cup of coffee. And Bannon and Priebus have been trying to call me all night. Of course, I didn't answer the phone. Now it's 7.30 in the morning, Bannon calls me. I answered the phone, I said, hello, Stephen. He says, hey, you little fucking asshole. <laughs> he says, you know what your chances are to be the White House communications director today? You know what your chances are? I said, no, Stephen, what are my chances? He says, zero. You got me? Zero. And I said, well, Stephen, last time I checked, president isn't before your last name, it's before Trump's last name. I think my chances are pretty good. I said, so you want to fight it out with me or do you want to break bread? Slams the phone down on me, okay? I said, all right, this is going to be an interesting day for me. And an hour later, he calls me back. It's now 8.30. He says, meet me and Reince in the chief of staff's office at 9.30. I get the meeting with President Trump at 10 o'clock. I said, okay, no problem. I get in the office. It's a two-on-one tag team. And they're like, you can't take this job. I got offered the ambassadorships, 
I think he wanted to put me in fucking Antarctica, actually, okay? But I think we have a pretty good relationship with the penguins. So I said, no to Antarctica. He starts listing all these ambassadorships and all these promises. I said, no, nah, I think I'm fine. I think we're gonna be the comms director. Why don't the two of you go fuck yourselves, okay? That's literally how the thing started. So you know it was going downhill from there, right? And so now we get into the Oval Office and Trump is pissed. He looks at the two of them, he says, you guys are filth, all you do is leak on me, and then Trump buries me. I'm gonna tell you how he buried me. He turns to uh, the White House secretary, the staff secretary, uh, his name was Rob Porter, and Trump says, I want you to put out a press release, Scaramucci is gonna be the comms director, uh, who's he reporting to, sir? And he says he's gonna report directly to me. Okay, and then he looks at Ryan, he says, I don't want him tainted with your filth. And I'm like, okay, this is gonna be really bad because you can't have the comms director reporting to the president. Because whoever replaces Ryan, you know, they can't, you can't have two people, right? And that's how my day started. So if you're ever having a fucking bad day out there, <laughs> I just want you to know, there are worse days, okay? You can call me, I'll give you the hotline number, I'll cheer your ass up, okay? And it got progressively worse until I was fired and shot out of a cannon and rolled into Pennsylvania Avenue. And then you have comedians like this son of a bitch making fun of you. I mean, you know, it was a rough period of time. I mean, just in terms of what it's like to work at the White House, like, were you there long enough to get like a fob and an email address? Okay, so, yes, is the answer to the question. So, not only that, I had the security clearance because I, had, I was set up for the original job. So I went through the whole security clearance. I actually had a White House badge from January 20th. And so, you know, I, I you know, yes is the answer to the question. In fact, all of that stuff was already taken care of. And so I hit the ground running on that day. And so then of course I did the press conference that day. Okay, well let's talk about that thing. So I was gonna ask you about Steve Bannon, but that room, I mean, we've seen it on TV. We've seen it recreated on various disaster movies. <laughs> what does it feel like in there? Is it more claustrophobic than it looks? Does it feel like a pressurized environment? So, so this, you know, look, I, and I, and I will say something cautionary. We have a tendency to demonize Trump because of some of his malevolence and what he does as a person. But you have to remember, even demagogues are human beings, right? You have to look at the whole complexity of the person and the human nature, and so. Does that mean we should feel sorry? No, not feel sorry for him, but I'm gonna share a story with you, and, and, and it's apropos to what you just asked me. So I'm sitting there now, the office is cleared out, he's made the uh, direction that I'm gonna be the comms director. He says to me, what do you wanna do with Sean Spicer? I said, well, what do you wanna do? He goes, well, I wanna fire him. I said, okay, fine. Sarah Huckabee walks in, Mr. President, excuse me, Sean Spicer just resigned. And I said, okay, good, well, we don't have to fire him. That's <laughs> fucking great, okay, and then she walks out. And then Trump says to me, well, who should be the press secretary? I said, well, you gotta make Sarah the press secretary. You need a woman to do this job for you, so let's make her the press secretary. Talk to her about her in a second. But then I looked at him. Now, if you're in the Oval Office, it's very small. And so it looks a lot bigger on camera, but it's a very small office. But on the ceiling of the office, there's a plaster of Paris seal of the president. So that, that famous seal with the bald eagle. And I look up, and I look at him, I look up, and I say to him, I mean, we're both in the Oval Office. I said, you know, my heart raced the first time I walked in there. I said, tell me the truth. 
did your heart race the first time you came in here as president? And a very honest answer, he said yes. He said, I walked in, I sat behind the desk, and I'm looking up at what you're looking at, and I said, holy shit, I'm the president of the United States. And then the phone was ringing, and it was the White House protocol officer. And he got on the phone, he said, hello, yes. He said, okay, on such and such date, Theresa May, your prime minister, is coming. I think she was the first head of state to visit him. He said, okay, okay, thank you, thank you. And he hung up the phone, he goes, holy shit, I gotta go meet Theresa May. And he looked at me and he said, so you know, I got up, they told me to go to the North Portico to greet Theresa May, and of course I went to the North Portico, and the next thing you know, this whole shit show started. And he said, I'm gonna tell you something, Anthony, you're gonna be in awe of this office for a day, and then after that, you're not gonna be in awe of the office, it's gonna be another office to you because there's so much work to do. And I gotta tell you, that's exactly what happened because there's a kinetic pressure and frenzy, and then the next thing you know, you're, uh, I mean, I got my ass fired after that, of course, but, but you're, you're in there and you're in that soup. And then he had a whole complicated thing going on between the fiefdoms inside there, and they were warring with each other uh, pretty badly. And previous in Bannon, they wanted me out in the worst possible way. And did, is Trump presiding over that court in a way that is planned? Is he deliberately having people that he knows will have conflicts with each other, or is it just he's chaotic, he doesn't think it's No, he has literally no executive management skills. I mean, I, that's the honest truth. He's a showman and a raconteur, and he was the accidental president, but he has no, he couldn't delegate or create an environment of a, a execution in any way, shape, or form. I can't tell you the name of the cabinet secretary, um, but this was February. You can figure it out because this book came out in February of 2020. You'll figure it out. And he was on Morning Joe, and he came to see me in my office, and we're here in New York City, sits down on my couch, and he says to me, man, he says, this guy has absolutely no executive management skills, and so it's impossible because there are 19 cabinet positions, there are 30 sub-cabinet positions, nobody knows what to do. If you study presidential history, there's several different models. There's the White House model, where everything gets run from the White House and projected into the cabinets. Reagan had a cabinet model where he let it bubble back up. He said, we are in like a billiard game. Trump gets up in the morning, we don't know what the hell he's doing, who he's tweeting, he's shooting the and the billiards are flying everywhere, and everybody is scared shit that they're gonna get tweeted at. They're gonna be called a stone cold loser, like your mayor, the mayor of London, I mean, all this shit, right? And so they're paralyzed with fear, and there's no orchestration at the executive branch of the United States. This is, um, yeah, maybe it was January, because I'll tell you why, because the Khomeini strike happened right after, it was probably January of 2020. And so he said to me, I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen, Anthony, there's gonna be a crisis, and this son of a bitch is gonna completely mishandle the crisis, and the entire executive branch is gonna be mobilized, and we're gonna be in a lot of trouble. And then about a week later, Khomeini, the attack on the uh, Iranian general happened. And I called this person, and I said, is this the crisis? He said, maybe. And then that abated, and then of course, a month and a half or two months later, we went into the COVID-19 situation, and I can give you chapter and verse, every single thing this guy did wrong in that situation. And the main thing was born from his insecurity because 
A secure person goes to experts and says, okay, man, you're an expert on comedy. This guy's an expert on epidemiology. You know, or maybe not that big of an expert. But, but you know, and, and you delegate. You say, okay, you know, Dr. Fauci, what should I do? Or Scott Gottlieb, the FDH, what should we do? How should we plan this? Not Trump. Trump has to go at people and he has to try to prove to you that he's smarter than you. And so, you know, I know more than the generals, you know, I'm smarter than the epidemiologists and this, that, and the other thing. And he drives people crazy. But then I figured out why. Can I tell this? Is that yeah. okay? Can I tell why? Absolutely. And then I figured out why, because I was on the Bill Maher show with Stormy Daniels. Everybody remember her? Yeah. <laughs> after the show. Yeah. More male said, than female voices. I said, I said, after the show, I said, I had a drink with her. My wife is there, so trust me, it's fine. And I said, after the show, I said, come on. I said, just tell me the truth. Give me the whole thing, you know? All right. And she got into the raw dogging and all that stuff. Of course, it's disgusting. And then she said to me, she said to me, look at it. And then she gave me the whole thing. And in Italian, the expression is una poca pichadel, okay? Which means tiny schmeckle, right? That's basically it. And then she's like, you know, it's like a shiitake mushroom. I mean, I haven't been to a fucking Japanese restaurant in three years, okay? You have to have miso soup after she says that to you, right? And I looked at her, I said, oh my God. I said, that explains the whole thing. Trump has heard four words that no guy can survive. You want to hear the four words? Yeah. You guys want to hear the four words? Okay. Is it in yet? Is it in yet? And then you can reverse engineer the guy's entire personality and the massive insecurity right there. So you, so, okay. I mean, Freud would probably agree in a roundabout way. Just saying. I mean, you could bring Stormy up here, she'll tell you. She'll like, but, very, very uninspiring situation. But actually. just to <laughs> do the counterfactual, are we saying that if he had a bigger penis, his politics would have been different? I think we are saying that. <laughs> I think thousand percent saying that. <laughs> so what can we infer from your politics? <laughs> I'm Italian, I think that's enough. It speaks for itself. So with Trump then, how political is he? Is there any consistent philosophy? Is there anything that ties it all together? Attention and money. Attention and money. And it flips depending on the day and the moment. And so if he didn't feel like he was getting enough attention, he had to say something ridiculous so that it would force himself back into the spotlight. And he wanted the top half of a broadsheet newspaper more than anything. I mean, that ultimately is what he wanted. See his name on the top half of a broadsheet. And uh, one of the other cabinet secretaries said to me, man, there are two things. If he says it to you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get out of the way. Number one thing he would say is, oh, so you think you're President Pompeo? Is that what you think? You're President Pompeo? Or you're President Bannon? Get out of the way. And then the second thing was, I think you're getting more famous than me, okay? And one of the cabinet secretaries said, when he said that to me, I planned a trip to Argentina for two weeks. <laughs> because that's Trump. If, you, if he felt like your star was rising, I mean, you guys wouldn't remember this, but there was a blonde woman that worked for him on The Apprentice, and she was getting some fame and notoriety in season one and two. And she wrote a book, and she went on the speaking tour, and the minute she did that, bang, he fired her, and he brought Ivanka in to replace her on the show. So 
his thing was, and Kellyanne actually said this to me once, it's a one-person show, it's one stage, and there's one spotlight, and you've got to get out of the way of this guy, otherwise he'll hit you with a ray gun. And is he bright? Does he have a kind of street-level savvy? Because yes. it's really easy for people to look at him and dismiss him as thick. No, no. He's, he, see, that's, the, that's the, your peril, because he's pilloried in the press, you guys hit him hard on spitting image and all that other stuff, but don't underestimate the brightness. Now, he, he's got a learning disability, right? He can't read, right? Well, everybody knows that, right? And so he was probably undiagnosed learning disability, and he's probably got attention deficit. But let me say something about people like that. It would be like if you were blind or you were, if, you, if you're blind, you're likely are developing better hearing. If you're deaf, you're likely to have better vision. And so you compensate for these deficits. So, you know, Richard Branson um, is someone that I'm you know, reasonably close to, in pretty good relationship. I've visited him on Necker Island many times. He would tell you that he has attention deficit and dyslexia. So a result of which he's figured out how to use his native intelligence differently than other people. And whether you like Trump or dislike Trump, that is Trump. He is very much so smart. He's just not book smart or intellectually curious. You, and can't, you can't say he's not smart. He got to the American presidency, just a different type of smart. And is it that, so when he's unleashing these incredible forces, when you see it in Charlottesville and places like that, where people are paying with their lives for the, for the forces that he's unleashing. Does he care at all? Does he, does he realize yeah, it's a no. consequence of his words? No, no, he doesn't care. He likes that. That's the demagoguery about him. You know, he's, he's figured out, and this is somewhat exploitive, and this is, uh, you know, listen, at the end of the day, I supported him, and I have to own that I supported him. And so I've already offered that apology, and I think Somebody that supported him, that has a level of self-awareness, would say the following. You have to acknowledge the pain that Trump caused in terms of the racial tension and a lot of the things that he did. And I've tried to own that, and I've tried to offer my apology for that. But then I also spoke out against him. And you have to trust me, you know, there were death threats, death threats to my family. Um, I went out and campaigned against him because I thought it was the right thing to do for the country. I could have easily just slinked away like a lot of these guys did, or you know, whatever. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back, I'm just acknowledging what happened. But here's the thing, and, and rest assured of this, he has figured out that there's a group of people in the country that, let's face it, are white, and the demographics are changing in the country, a result of which a democracy means that there's gonna be a more beautiful, more colorful mosaic of people that rise to power. And there's a group of people, for whatever reason, they do not like that. You know, they watch Fox News and they buy catheters from Fox News on the commercial breaks and they <laughs> sit there and they grumble at the, I don't know what, that's all they fucking sell on Fox News. It's catheters. Like catheters, I don't watch Fox News. It can't get any real sponsors. <coughs> it's like the MyPillow guy who's fucking completely nuts. And then you, know, you know what I'm talking about. But this is a group of people that Trump has dialed into, and I'm gonna tell you why it pains me, because I grew up with these people, okay? I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood, and my first campaign stop with Donald Trump was in New Mexico. And when I got, I was, I was originally with Jeb Bush, and when I got to 
New Mexico, I saw something that we never saw on the Jeb Bush campaign. You know what that was? People. We saw people. <laughs> Jeb was like, please clap, and we had four people in the room, okay? <laughs> Trump had 9,000 people at the Albuquerque Civic Center. And so I took, there's a, the Secret Service gives you this day pin, this way when the shooting starts, they won't shoot at you, you have the little pin on. When I first got the fucking pin, I was like going like this. <laughs> so now I took the pin off, I put it in my pocket, I, I, I went past the velvet rope and I walked into the crowd and I started talking to people. And it dawned on me while I was talking to these people, this was my dad. He was talking to my dad, but it was 35 years later. So my father grew up in a coal mining town in northeastern Pennsylvania. He left that town and moved to Long Island to mine sand, and he ultimately became a crane operator, where he spent 42 years at the same company. You know, and again, great job, very good wages. I grew up in what I would consider to be the middle class. I would never dishonor my dad's work ethic by telling you otherwise. We were in the middle class. We shared a bedroom, we had one full bath in the house. It was tight budget, but my dad had a living wage. And I was talking to these people in New Mexico and I went up to one guy and he said to me, yeah, I, I lost my job two years ago. You know, I was at the factory, my dad retired. He was at the same factory, uh, but the factory moved. And he said, Anthony, you think you're in New Mexico, but you wanna know where new New Mexico is? That would be Mexico. And 65,000 factories left the United States on the signing of NAFTA, and these people were desperate for work. And what I would say to everybody here is in 35 short years, I grew up in an aspirational working class family. My parents thought, hey, one of our kids is gonna go to college, gonna live the American dream. You went from aspirational working class families to economically desperational working class families and you could blame it on the forces of globalization or whatever you want to blame it on. But the point is there was this tremendous anxiety and maybe you guys felt it here, or maybe that's why you guys Brexited. I don't know your politics as well as I know our politics, but I remember going backstage and saying to myself, oh my God, he's talking to my dad, but it just happens to be a different era where these are people that didn't go to college and they're desperate for work and they want to work, by the way. They're not looking for handouts. They want to work. And, you know, I went back on the campaign plane and I flew with him to California. And I remember calling my old boss from Goldman Sachs and I remember saying to him, I said, Bobby, he's talking to the people that I grew up with. It's just the world has changed. And this is a mistake that we all make, so I'm going to share it with you. I grew up in this blue collar family and I went to Tufts and Harvard Law School and I went to Goldman Sachs and I started hanging out with very successful people. And now, you're, now you're in the salons, <laughs> yeah, but you're in the salons of the wealthy and you start to pick up the collective biases of the people that you're with. And it doesn't reflect well on me to say this to you, but I'll share it with you. I missed what was happening in my old neighborhood. I missed the angst of what was going on. And he saw it, and he exploited it, and that's where the pain comes in. Rather than saying, okay, we have this problem, we have to solve this problem, we have to bring these people back into the establishment where they can trust the medical establishment, the political establishment, the business establishment, he exploited it. 
and he channeled anger through it. And he got them to literally not even take the vaccine. And he got them to think about the society in this very vitriolic and poisonous way. And so that really sucks, by the way. I mean, it really sucks. We have to fix it. So, you know, I have a friend here in the audience who said, you know, stop picking a fight with Trump. It's too dangerous for you. I said, no, you, you, you have to pick this fight. This is a fight for every single person in this room. You have to pick a fight on this because your democracy, our democracy, the Western canon of liberalism, the whole goddamn thing is at stake. And you gotta, you gotta be willing to stick up for it. Even if you take a lot of shit along the way or you get characterized or caricatured. Go ahead, ask, ask another question. <laughs> anyway, I'm just gonna... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's obviously a, a period where you feel that emotional connection. It's talking to your dad. You realise then, obviously, you're basically lying to your dad, you know, and we're using that as shorthand. But was there a period then where you thought, actually, you might actually deliver for those people? No question. No, no, there's no question. When I, when I uh, and again, because I don't want to revise history, you know, like there's a uh, very famous saying, people remember things the way they need to, not the way they actually happen. So I don't want to revise history, and I'm not going to demonize these people. In the beginning, banning was actually way more normal. In the beginning. And I think the power perverted his uh, ambition and started to really corrupt him. But in the beginning there was a slate of policies that they wanted to push that were frankly sort of left-leaning some of those policies. You know, there were jobs training and industrial policy, uh, in, you know, infrastructure, of course, he could never get it done, but he had those policies. But when they met contact with power, then the corruptive forces started happening and then they went with the tax cut and they went in that direction as opposed to like really coming up with a good plan for the society. And had he not fired you when he did, how long do you think you'd have stayed? Well, I would have liked to make it 12 days. Don't you guys think, I mean, you know, it would have been fun to at least have an even dozen days. When Steve Colbert asked me, yeah, I didn't think I was gonna get thrown out before the milk went spoiled, okay? I didn't really think that. But, you know, you know, I probably would have had to and this is the thing, you have to be honest with yourself, right? The American president, who is a motherfucking asshole, but he's the American president, he's offering you a job to work in the White House. 
And now maybe you're a better person than me and you would have been strong enough not to take that job, but I took the job. And then you have to ask yourself, after Charlottesville, which happened literally a week after I got fired, would I have had the balls to resign from the job after he said that there were very fine people on both sides? And I have to confess, I don't honestly know the answer. I would love to think of myself in a way that yes, I would have had the balls to resign. So I would like to answer you and say, 19 days. That's all long about away. But I don't know, because you're in that situation and the goalposts, one thing about Trump, he's very good at moving the goalposts on people. He did it to Michael Cohen. He did it to John Kelly, who became a friend of mine. John fired me. He keeps moving the goalposts on you to test you. Oh, you think you're a good guy? Let me move the goalposts. Let me see if you'll do that. Okay, you're willing to do that for me, you stupid son of a bitch? Let me move the goalposts. <laughs> you see what I mean? And that's what he did to everybody. And so General Kelly, who fired me, uh, and we obviously were sore at each other as a result of that. I mean, you know, he moved the goalposts on him and he hurt the guy's career. But here's a guy that worked for the American military for 40 years. He was a four-star general. He lost his son in Iraq, okay? His son was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And unfortunately, he stepped on a plastic landmine. And so there was a mistake. You're supposed to have a magnetic, you know, like a metal detector, check the minefield, and then you have to run, you know, an aircraft over the minefield and hit it with sonar to see if there are plastic mines. And the Marines were told that they did both. They only checked it with the metal detector. He was the first kid into the minefield and he died instantly. He exploded in the minefield. Four-star general, he's a Gold Star family member, and he has to listen to President Trump say, these guys in the military, what the hell is wrong with them? Why would they do so? Kelly is the one that put that in the Atlantic. He's the one that let that out. Okay, of course, Trump denied it, but that's exactly how Trump felt. So you have to think about General Kelly. Like He's moving the goalposts on the guy. Him and I actually became very close friends. I mean, we're a little bit like Felix and Oscar from The Odd Couple, him and I, but, but he is, you know, he really helped the country during the Trump administration in ways that he would never tell anybody because of how chaotic and crazy it actually was. So I would like to think that I would have left after Charlottesville, but maybe I wouldn't have had the balls to leave after Charlottesville, I don't know. But that was a terrible moment for us as a country where he's saying that there are Nazi sympathizers and white supremacists, and he says there are very fine people on both sides. And that was a major dog whistle to all those white supremacists. And you know, you had to, at that point, speak out about it. I spoke out about it. I was on uh, George Stephanopoulos' show that weekend. I spoke out about it. I denounced it. He called me, pissed off at me. And I said, you, you're totally wrong on this. You can't, you're the American president. You can't talk like this. So he was pissed at me. And what did he say in that call? He said that you're supposed to be on my team. You said you're going to be loyal to me. I said, well, I'm trying to be loyal to you, but you can't talk like that. But he still expected okay. loyalty after he found yeah, you. Yeah, I expected loyalty after And I was okay with that. Remember, I did something really fucking stupid, guys. Okay, you could look at what I did. It was one of the best political lines ever. I said Steve was in his office, blankety blank. But I said it to an Italian kid from my neighborhood whose father had worked on the same construction site as my dad. And he ran, he had taped me saying a really stupid thing, and he ran to CNN with it. I mean, who fucking does that, right? I mean, who does that, right? 
But I never blamed anybody. I said, it's my fault. I should have never had the conversation. I own the mistake. My firing, I'm accountable for what I did. I don't blame anybody but myself. And so a result of which, I'm going to try to stay loyal to the administration. But he kept doing these crazy things. So now finally, he's telling the women of the squad, these are four women that work in the Congress. They're on the left. Yeah, AOC. AOC, yeah, yeah. Uh, two of them, I think, are African-American. One is a Muslim-American, and AOC is obviously Hispanic-American. He tweets out that they should go back to the countries that they originally came from. So I'm on the Bill Maher show. This is the second time, not with Stormy this time. Not with Stormy, but I'm on the show. And You're pointing at me after you just made that. I'm just yeah. <laughs> no, I actually think you probably have Trump on that. But anyway, I'm on the show with Bill. He turns to me. And he says, well, okay, you're supporting him here and here, but how do you feel about what he said about the squad? And I look at Bill and I say, well, I don't like that very much. They told my Italian-American grandmother to go back to the country she originally came from. That's racism. It's American nativism. And he's the president of the United States. He should not really talk like that. Show's over. Bill says to me, Bill Maher, he says, he's going to tweet at you tomorrow. You know, he's going to attack you tomorrow. And I'm you know, having a Negroni with him. I said, there's no way he's going to attack me. I supported him. I was trying to be loyal to him. But, but. He goes, no, let me tell you something about Trump. He's a demagogue. You've got to go 13 for 10 for a demagogue. And you were 7 for 8 tonight. And I'm going to tell you tomorrow, he is going to hit you super hard. And so I bet Bill, dinner at Craig's, which is a fancy pants restaurant in LA. I said, I'll bet you dinner that he's not going to go at me. He said, OK, you're on. 3 p.m. he's fucking blasting me. Okay? I mean, he's fucking hitting me with everything, okay? I'm at the Beverly Hills Hotel in the bungalow. I'm looking at my fucking phone, okay? And I'm getting lit up by the leader of the free world, the President of the United States. Okay? And Bill said, I was the Philip. No, fucking, that. and two minutes, two minutes after that, the phone's ringing, it's Bill Moore. You owe me dinner, you stupid fuck. And I said, you're right, I owe you dinner. I can't believe this. And let me tell you something, okay? Let me tell you something. You get hit like that from the President of the United States, I was whiter than Matt's shirt. Even whiter than his skin. Look how fucking white he is. This could be the, could be the whitest fucking guy on earth. I, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? The President of the United States is going off on me on Twitter? And it is nerve wracking. Okay, you can pretend that it isn't. It is nerve wracking. So I, I got up, I went to the bathroom, I washed my face. I said, this motherfucker, I'm from New York and I hit him back. I think I called him the fattest president since William Howard Taft. Because <laughs> I know he hates being so fucking fat, so I just went right at him, okay? Then he lost his mind, and then he fired another shot at me, okay? And then I hit him, and then he does what Trump does. He starts attacking my wife. Who fucking does that, right? I mean, they don't even do that in the mob, right? So once he started attacking my wife, I took the gloves off, and then I started mauling the motherfucker, okay? And then I got a call from one of his family members, and they were like, Jesus Christ, I mean, can we, can we have a peace? I said, fuck him. I said, he apologizes, we'll have a peace. He doesn't apologize. I'm going to go after this motherfucker until he's in the ground. I'm from New York. Do I look like Ted Cruz to you fucking <laughs> fucking the family member calls me back, I'm not going to mention who, said, listen, you know, we apologize to you and, and your wife, but can we have a truce, meaning don't go after any of the kids, we won't go after you, keep the fight between you and my father. I'm like, no problem. 
And I buried that motherfucker every day from that day. Okay, you can follow my Twitter account, on the radio. You'll laugh at this. I'm on the radio with this conservative radio host. And he says to me, well, you're a D-list celebrity. What would the president of the United States give a shit about you? You're a D-list celebrity. I said to the guy, you know, I'm really offended. I am not a D-list celebrity. I'm a double D-list celebrity. Let me tell you something. I'm going in for breast reduction surgery. I expect to come out as a B-lister, okay? And I hit the guy, and he lost the election. I didn't help him lose that election. He lost the election because of his idiocy, and he turned off so many people. But let me tell you something. I was not going to let up one day, and if that motherfucker comes back, I'm coming out of retirement. I'm going to hit that motherfucker again. As part, you're allowed to curse here, right? Oh, yeah. Right. I'm going to hit him. I'm going to hit him. Like to just, <laughs> I asked you before I got out of I'm going to hit that motherfucker as hard as you could possibly imagine if he shows up again. Okay, because he is a danger to the world. He's a danger to Western liberals. He's a danger to our democracy. And let me tell you something, you can't have that guy run on anything. And, uh, and that's how I feel about it. So I hold back a little. Do you think he'll stand again in 2024? I think he wants to. I think a lot of things have to fall in place for him to. And one of the things that's happening right now is the Republicans are trying to figure out a way to move away from him. You know, this guy, Glenn Youngkin, who won in Virginia, and they're trying to figure out if there's a playbook where they can go forward without him. And then, of course, there's a group of sycophants and acolytes that are still with him. It'll also depend on the information that comes out on the January 6th insurrection, because he's trying to suppress that information. If that information comes out, I think it'll be very hard for him to stand for re-election. And what would that information need to say in order to, to prevent it? Well, he, he was part of it. He was, in, he was an insurrectionist during that. Remember, he's off Twitter because the Counterterrorism Center knows what he did, and the Counterterrorism Center knows what his text messages look like and what his cell phone calls look like. And so when people say, well, the, you know, ISIS isn't off Twitter, the Taliban isn't off Twitter, but yet Trump is off Twitter, none of them were in the nation's capital trying to overthrow the government, okay? But he was. And so he's off Twitter for those reasons. Don't, don't, don't underestimate how much they know about what him and guys like Steve Bannon were doing uh, prior to that certification. And, and that goes beyond then just perhaps sympathy and incitement and saying phrases that people might say, well, look, no, he's, do you think they'll share intelligence and details? He, he definitely was part of the planning of the attack on the Capitol. He was definitely a part of it. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. A hundred percent. And that will come out. And that's why 10 of those members of the House that were Republicans moved to impeach him. The other ones didn't because they were politically tied to him and they were fearful of him. But I do admire the courage of those people that were Republicans that looked at the facts and said, this guy's got to go. And they impeached him for the second time. And so... That was an act of insurrection and sedition and domestic terrorism. And ultimately, what is so astonishing is because of his shamelessness and the way he prosecuted it, 
He's now put the Biden administration in a pickle because you don't want to turn the United States into a banana republic. And so Joe Biden's sitting there saying, okay, I don't necessarily know if I want to jail him or Steve Bannon because I'll turn them into martyrs. Okay, they think they're Martin Luther King, but they're really Adolf Hitler, right? I mean, they, wait, Hitler went to jail. Remember, Hitler came out of jail more powerful. He was jailed in 1924, and people thought, okay, well, now it's over. He was in jail, but history teaches you that he got more powerful. He became a martyr to the mood. Steve Bannon is doing everything he can to get his ass thrown in that jail because he believes that that's going to help that movement. Bannon wants to go to jail. 100%. He, he sees himself, again, he sees himself as Martin Luther King Jr., but he's more like Adolf Hitler, this fucking guy. Okay, so they, and you have to, you have to see it. Like, here's the problem, okay? I was in Washington for 11 days, but I got an 11-day PhD in Washington scumbaggery, okay? I know how these guys operate. And so Biden's sitting there saying, don't want to put these guys in jail. The minute I put them in jail, I'm going to make them martyrs. So what I would like to have happen is all the facts and circumstances come out, and then my bet is they'll prosecute them and commute their sentences because you don't want the country to turn into a banana republic where you're jailing your political adversaries, even though they're low license deserve to be in jail. You don't want to set up that sort of domino effect which would take place. It would be, it would be even more toxic, frankly, than what we're living in right now. The footage of it was petrifying. I can only imagine how you felt as a patriot watching that happen to your country. The fear of how much worse that could have been. Well, let me, let me tell you though, I mean, there was nothing worse than November 3rd, man. It looked like he was winning. I was like, oh fuck, this is going to be super bad for me. <laughs> I mean, I was watching that night. I was like, oh my God, this guy wins. I mean, I'm going to be moving somewhere, you know? I was like looking at the map. And then it started going the other way. I was like, okay, thank God. So November 3rd was really bad. January 6th was really bad. Um, and it's not over. This is a fight. This is a fight. The battle has been won. And the democracy and the institutions of the American democracy held, but just barely. They were stress tested and they almost broke. Imagine if Kevin McCarthy was the Speaker of the House and not Nancy Pelosi, or one of his acolytes who he manipulated either through their fear or love of power subverted the American democratic system after 245 years of success. I mean, guys, that was close, man. And so we have to gear up for another fight. There's another fight coming. And, this whole, I mean, and these people are not giving up, by the way. No. It's not like they're going away. Well, we've got conspiracy theorists here, anti-vaxxers. You see them in Trafalgar Square pretty much every Saturday, it seems. The QAnon thing. Yeah. I mean, what, explain to me <laughs> Trump's involvement with it and whether he believes it or not. No, 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 he doesn't. No, no, no. Come on. Remember, Trump got the vaccine. Every one of his family members got the vaccine. Okay, but he knows, and you sort of know this, okay, but let me state the obvious, but I think it's worth repeating. If you grow up in a blue collar neighborhood, and you don't have a glass ceiling, but there's like a steel ceiling, and you can't break through, and you can't get ahead. And you know, my dad was like, all right, you know, my job sucks, but you know what, I'm doing this for my family, and one of my kids is gonna go to college. 
So there was an aspiration to that. But imagine if you're a blue collar guy, and I think my dad's top pay when he retired in 2000 was 35,000 US dollars. But imagine if you're making 35,000 US dollars and you think your kid's gonna make 18. You see, you see, you have to have empathy for these people. So what happens is you, you disenfranchise, you unplug from the system. You say, well, the system's broken. Well, there must be a conspiracy. There has to be something afoot. There has to be something where these people are plotting against us to keep us here. And then you get these intelligence officers, mostly foreign adversaries, that feed the beast of that. And now they got people drinking, you know, believing that people drink children's blood and all this kind of fucking crazy bullshit. I mean, and let me tell you something, I grew up in a neighborhood like that. So some of my cousins who are digging clams on Long Island or putting in auto glass or working at a pizzeria, they believe that. And I'm looking at it, dudes, are you crazy? How could you believe that? But you have to understand the psychology of why. Okay, and that should worry everybody because it's a massive, massive amount of disinformation. And something that Trump understands, if I can repeat the lie a hundred times, I can get 10, 20 percent of the pot. No collusion, no collusion, right? Remember, no collusion. Yeah. The people are going to believe it. You see what's going on? And I will say this to everybody because I've seen it. It is weapons grade propaganda, okay, from our adversaries. You think Vladimir Putin is happy that the Soviet Union fell? He's not happy. He wants to disintegrate the United Kingdom. He wants to disunite the United States. He wants to break up the European Union because he wants to put a hurt on us the way we took out the Soviet Union. Does everybody understand that? So they can't do it traditionally, so they're gonna use manipulation and soft power to try to do it. And we have to get these people back on board. We have to actually <coughs> explain to them what's going on and tell them, hey, oh, we're better together. We have to recommit ourselves to our civic virtues to protect ourselves from this. You see what's going on? But then you got political leaders like Trump saying, hey, this is playing to me, man. I don't give a shit. If, if Putin's gonna help me get into power, I don't care. Let's rock and roll. And obviously Roger Stone and Bannon knew that. Bannon knew that there was collusion and so did Roger Stone. And so he pardoned those two guys. Everybody following this? I mean, it's a nasty thing. Okay, but again, that's my PhD in Washington politics. <laughs> but I'm just trying to explain it to you because you need to know, you need to, like the vaccine, I can't speak for the United Kingdom, but in the United States, if you're gonna to go to a public school, I think there are 12 vaccines that you need to take. So in this country, we call private schools, public and private schools, they'll okay. be called public schools, state schools. So what, what do you mean by public school? That's so that would be the state, state, the state school, school yeah. the state schools in the United States. I went to a public school, which is basically the government, you know, creates the school for you. Yeah. It's not a private school where you pay tuition, you know, you, you live in a town, they let you go to that school. You're required to take 12 different vaccinations. The disinformation on this vaccine is mind-boggling to me. And it, and it plays, and it's literally weapons-grade propaganda because you know, they're trying to subvert your idea of freedom and the control of your own body and it feeds into the conspiracy theorists who don't trust the government, so there has to be something wrong with the vaccine. 
It, and, and yet Donald Trump himself, every one of his family members, Ted Cruz, that fat fuck, every one of them <laughs> took the vaccine. I don't like Ted Cruz, by the way. <laughs> I mean, that guy's the worst, man. I mean, there are some really bad ones, but he's at the top of the list. Well, well it worse than Trump? In some ways, yes. I mean, thankfully, he doesn't have Trump's name recognition or 15 years on television where he has billions of dollars of advertising and brand, but he's smarter than Trump, you know, and he knows better than Trump, okay? And yet, you know, he's a sycophant, you know? So he's dangerous. He's a very dangerous guy. Okay, well, um, it's now your chance if you'd like to ask a question of Anthony Scaramucci, please. Raise your hand. I'll take a few. Uh, if you could, if we could have uh, one sentence questions, please. I'll repeat them for the podcast so that when this is put out, people can uh, hear it. Um, and I'll try and get a broad spread. So, if you just have the house lights up a little bit, just so I can see people. We just get your hand in the air and uh, one right here. Yes, we'll start off with the gentleman down here. Um, what's your take on Sarah Huckabee Sanders? What's your take on Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Um, she's a product of her environment. Um, she grew up in a political family. She was roundly against Trump in the beginning. Don't forget, Pompeo was against Trump. Kellyanne Conway was against Trump. They all spoke out against Trump, myself included. When he became the nominee, we fell in line because we thought that was due to loyalty. Um, I like Sarah. I think she's a very nice person. But when you're that political, you're going to break principle in order to succeed. I don't think she'll win the election. She's running for the Arkansas governor, but I do like her because I, th I think down deep she's trying to do the right thing. I'll always try to be straight with these people. I don't, just because she supports Trump, I don't dislike her. I, I do like her. And I'll tell this quick story about her. Um, so Trump named me the comms director. I named Sarah the press secretary. So I just want to set the West Wing for you. The largest office in the West Wing is the Oval Office, and it's small. The second largest office in the West Wing is the press secretary's office. Why? Well, Teddy Roosevelt built the, he designed it, and he said, well, the press are going to be in that office cavorting with the press secretary, so he made it bigger. The comms director's office is like a phone booth. It's this big. And Sarah turned to me after I got the job, and she said, listen, would you like to take my office, because a bigger office, and you're the comms director, you're my boss, and I'll sit in the comms director's office. So that's Sarah Huckabee Sanders, to be totally candid. And I said to her, no way. And I said, I'm, plus I'm an entrepreneur. I can operate my business from my cell phone. I, I don't need a big office. You need that office. You're the press secretary. And so, so I do like her, actually. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a bad opinion of her. I'm a little pissed at her, though. Can I tell you why? <laughs> because I just got to mention this. Okay? And she put it in her book. Okay, I, I had on my buckle since I was 12 that I wanted to take a dump in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> It's in a book, right? So I, oh, I had my opportunity to drop a deuce in the West Wing, and I came out of there, and I turned to Sarah, and I said, I, I got that off my bucket list. She, you, got, you got what off your bucket list? And then I explained what it was, and she did put it in her book, by the way. <laughs> anyway, you asked, so I told you. That was on my bucket list. Oh, Mission nice. accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> in 11 days, you only went once. <laughs> So we'll bind it up. I mean, it was a stressful <laughs> job. Okay. More than one, silly. Is the one on the end there, I think? Uh, which 
member of the Trump family is going to be running for president in 20 to 30 years' time? Which member of the Trump family will run for president in 20 to 30 That's years' time? a good question. Time. So I'm going to be the contrarian on that, and I'm going to say no member of that family will be able to run for president. Now, who wants to run for president? Ivanka Trump 100% wants to run for president, and Donald Trump Jr. 100% wants to run for president. So if I was just generically answering you, I would say Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. will run for president. But I don't think they're going to be able to run for president because I think the information that's going to come out is going to be overwhelming and very, very tarnishing. And I can tell you right now, because I understand this, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Ghost. Yeah, remember the great, movie Ghost? I only saw it recently. Danny, okay, you remember when those little, remember the little <laughs> black goblins came out and they took the oh, bad guy into the house? Okay, but those, those guys are coming out on the Trump family from the Republican Party. They're trying to figure out a way to take out Trump because you have a lot of young guys that want those positions. And so I think they'll be too tarnished to run. That's my honest opinion. But those are the two that want to run. But what, and then Demi Moore wins? <laughs> I don't know if she won, right? Because I think the other guy got killed, right? I mean, oh, Patrick right, Swayze. Yeah, yeah, he got killed in the movie. It's a really sad film. Yeah. Yeah, but I still remember those black little goblins. They're going to take out the Trump family. That's my opinion. <laughs> okay. Could you tell us a bit more about what uh, Trump made of Theresa May, and do you ever envy British politics? Could you tell us a bit more about what Trump made of Theresa May, and do you ever envy British politics? Envy British politics. <laughs> I think it sucks over here too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, no, I don't envy British politics. Although I think you guys have sometimes a better sense of humor about your politics. Uh, I would say that um, I think he liked Theresa May. And that, that's my recollection. Um, I had joined the administration after he'd met with her at least twice. I would say, I don't know if you guys would remember Kim Darrick, who was your ambassador. Yes. Um, somebody leaked on Kim Darrick. That's the sinister nature of your politics. They leaked on him. He, he basically wrote a truthful cable about what Trump was really like. But my experience with Kim Darrick was very favorable. And I'll tell you this about Kim Darrick. I mean, he was trying to give Trump what he wanted. So Trump wanted to meet with the Queen, and he wanted to go to Buckingham Palace. He had this whole checklist of vanity and ego things that he wanted to do. He wanted to have a shit at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, could you imagine a Trump shit? I mean, that's gotta be, that's gotta be horrific. I mean, that's Same to the Queen. I got that off my bucket list. <laughs> but anyway, I would say that uh, I think he liked Theresa May. And I think he, uh, I think he respected her, um, but you know he really only thinks about himself. So that's probably as far as it went. You know, I don't think he, I don't think it was anything more complex than that. And just on the Queen, then he did seem genuinely dazzled and really happy when no Britain would lay on no, the red was, carpet for him. Yeah, that was a big deal for him. That was a very big deal for him. Trust me. And that's purely just oh, it feels like powerful people like me type stuff. One hundred percent. And would he talk about I the mean, queen? she looked like she was having a tough time with him, though, right? Her body was like, whoa, I mean, this guy sucks. I mean, you could just see it on her face. Poor woman, you know. Okay, now we can get some uh, more questions. Yes, the lady over there. Um, what is the relationship like between Melania and Donald Trump? What's the relationship like between Melania and Donald So that's Trump? a hard question for me because when he attacked my wife, I made a decision never to say anything about her one way or the other because I thought... You know, I would keep the gun on the bird and just attack him. But I did say that uh, my wife Deirdre hates him almost as much as Melania. And I'll leave it there and you can build the complexity. But I would encourage you to go on Twitter 
and see her facial expressions at various <laughs> events, or her swatting his hand away as they're walking, and I think you'll get a sense, a true sense for what that relationship is really like, without me commenting too much further. How's that? Uh, what, 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 did you ever talk to her? What was she like with you? I liked her. She was uh, down to earth. She's a concerned mother. Um, I liked her. I had no, no problem with her uh, as a person. Um, but I don't think she was in love with that job. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, I think she did the job, but she was not in love with the job. Was she in love with him? I think I answered that already. <laughs> <laughs> I think your audience already knows the answer to that. Okay, it's the gentleman over there. Who do you think will run in 2024, and who would you like to see run in 2024? Okay, those are really good questions. Who do you questions. think will run in 2024, and uh, who I, would you I like to think, see run? I don't think President Trump can run again. That's my honest opinion. I think the investigation will lead us down a path where he will likely not be able to run again. That's my prediction based on stuff that I've learned. And so that's my guess. Um, I, I think that DeSantis is going to run. Nikki Haley is going to run. Pompeo is going to run. Pence is going to run. And I see them as like different detergents of Trump. Okay, so let me go through that with you, okay? So Pence is like Trump with bleach. I mean, he's fucking whiter than Trump. I mean, it's hard to fucking believe, but he is, okay? Pompeo thinks he's smarter than Trump, so he's Trump with like bright colors, okay? Nikki Haley's like very ambivalent. Someday she likes Trump, someday she doesn't like Trump, so she's two cups of Trump on a Monday, no cups on a Wednesday, five cups of Trump on a Friday, okay? That's, that's it. And they're all various versions of Trump, but they're all gonna run. And so I predict none of them win. And I think somebody like Charlie Baker, who you may not know, who is the governor of Massachusetts, if he decides to run, I think he can beat them because he's not a Trumper, He's very popular in a blue state. He's a Republican running a Democratic state. And I think he had, I think the Trump stuff and Trumpism, I think it's like bad fashion. It's gonna go out of style. I just really believe that. And so the same way nobody could have predicted the rise of Barack Obama in 2008, I think there's somebody in the Republican party that will gain favor that no one's predicting right now. But all of those people are running. There's no question about that. They're all, they're all amassing fundraising teams and they're all working on strategy. What about the Democrats? I think it's a really, it's, it, it, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this is a contrarian view. I think Joe Biden is gonna run again. And, and I think it's a contrarian view, but I do think that because I think, I think if he's healthy enough to run again, I think he will run again. He'll be 81 years old, and so that'll be a big issue for them. But he's the sitting president, and I will say this about the sitting president, and this is why it was very nerve-wracking last year with Trump. The sitting president has a gigantic advantage over a potential successor. They've got Air Force One. They've got the office of the presidency. They're an unbelievable fundraising machine. They also have the power of the purse of the American government, so they can write checks and executive orders and disperse money all over the country. Now, I don't think the Democrats are gonna wanna give that up. That's my honest opinion, despite Joe Biden's age. So I'm a contrarian. If someone else up here that was a better suited political pundit would say, oh, you know, there's a slate of people and they'll make some shit up. But I don't think that. I think Joe Biden's gonna run again. 
Okay, let's try and take some from near the back. Yes, there's one right at the back there. Would you ever consider standing for office? Right, well, let me just have a drink before I answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> so Italians can survive one or two circumcisions. <laughs> what we can't survive is a fucking castration, okay? So the short answer to that is no. I think my wife would saw it off and probably my two legs. That's the truth. Why would she yeah. start there? Why not like a little finger oh, or let you know what would happen, you know, and, and, and the truth of the matter is, I don't think I'm well suited for political office because think about the way I've talked to you guys tonight. Think about that for a second, okay? I'm not well suited for it because I'm not going to say what people want to hear. I'm going to say what I think. And I don't think that works in politics. I'm just being very candid about it and somewhat self-aware. So no, I don't, I don't think so. Plus, the castration thing is a real fear. <laughs> so, as well as running Skybridge Capital, well, where that's else? That's a fun job. That's and a fun salt. Job. Um, yeah. What else do you do? You have any ambition left? What, what is it you want to achieve? <laughs> I want to hang out with you, Maddie. That's my ambition. I want to hang out with you. No, I listen. I, I, I think you got to love your work. I think you know. And I have five children, and I tell my children, and I really believe this. You gotta do what you love. Okay, you're here visiting. You're not living forever. Mel Brooks has one of the best lines ever. You know, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. You ever hear him say that? <laughs> but it's the truth, right? So when you're having a first of all, when you're having a bad day, I want you to think of my ass getting fired from the White House. That'll cheer you up to say, "Wow, it wasn't as bad as Scaramucci when he got fired from the White House. Can't be that bad, unless it's a health issue." Okay. And then the second thing is, I would tell you to do what you love. Okay, and you gotta. You got to do that, and so I've been blessed with that. You know, I built my own business. It was very hard to cancel me after the White House. Many people tried to, but I had my own business. I went back to my own business. You know, I dusted myself off like a human crashed on me. Big deal. Okay. The other thing I would tell you is that, of course, you've made mistakes in life. Who hasn't? But you got to drop that. You know, you can't wake up in the morning with a millstone of regret on your neck. I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, "Let me kick myself in the pants today. I made a big mistake in the White House." Uh, four or five years ago. I don't do that. And so right now, I love what I'm doing. I've got a podcast called Mooch FM, which has done reasonably well. You were on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Um, I have my business at about almost $10 billion under management. I have my, our salt conference business. Will I end up doing something else? Sure. Um, but not right now. I like what I'm doing. And I'm also, you know, I, I want to focus on my kids and take care of them. And, uh, Try to be a good dad, which you know, because I see a lot of fathers out here. You know, some days you're a better dad than others. You know, you just try your best. And so for me right now, all those things are great. Well, let's see what happens. But, but I got to tell you this. If Trump runs again, I have to stop what I'm doing. <laughs> and I got to go out there and do my best to beat the living shit out of him. <laughs> because he's a really bad guy. And you need tough people to stand up to a guy like that. Because he is a bully. And he's got to get punched right in the nose. And I'm going to be very happy to do that. And I'm no longer, when he tweets at me, as white as Matt's shirt. Okay, I've learned to take that punch. I remember once, uh, and I hope you don't remember me repeating this, we, we went for dinner and I was saying to you, how should, you know, when you would bully the other Republican candidates in those debates. Right. Like Jeb Bush. Yes. Was like, how, what is the best way to deal with that? What would a candidate do? Can you remember what you said? 
I think I said Jeb should have punched them in the face. Yeah. Did I say that? <laughs> but, said, but not yeah, just that. Them. Pushed him over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I said that to Jeb. If he starts in on you or your wife and you step away from the podium and you give him a shelf, you'll be the president of the United States. <laughs> if you don't do that, you're going to get knocked out of the race. And I'm going to tell you why. Because whether you like it or not, Trump had something going on that the other candidates didn't. Now, let me try to explain that. He didn't care what he said. Okay, now, if you care what you're saying and the other guy doesn't care what he says, he has an advantage over you. And so he had to create optics. Bush had to create optics. And that would have been one way to do it. And I think that would have flattened Trump. The other thing is, when Trump is coming at you and calling you little Marco or lying Ted Cruz, you, you can't fight him the way he's fighting you, right? It's like the farmer would say about the pig. You can't fight the pig in the mud because the pig likes it. Okay, you're not going to like that. And none of them, none of them went after him in a way that could have taken him out. And what could have taken him out? Any number of sensible policies any number of sensible policies, and look over at them and said, so, you know, where's this capital, or where's that capital, or how do you feel about this? You don't know what you're talking about. You have this level of depth, you're just trying to run over me, and then appeal to the people. They would have been way better than working on the sides of his hands, or stuff like that. Of course, I called him the fattest president of William Howard Taft, because I wasn't running for office, and I knew that that bothered that motherfucker in a way that you I just know that, like, I'll just tell you something about Trump. He, you have to take a picture of Trump from the front. If you take a picture of Trump from the side, he looks like an obese maniac. He looks like the fucking Guinness World Book of Records guy, the fat guy. And it used to drive him crazy. So if they took a picture of him from the side, he hated it. And so if you had campaign posters or campaign pictures, they had to be from the front, okay? And I understand that guy, which is why I was effective at getting under his skin. It's a New York thing, I guess. <laughs> and when was the last time you spoke to him? I can tell you the exact date, and I can tell you the exact time. It was April 19th, uh, 2019. It was Easter Sunday. And he called. It was the White House operator. It was the White House operator hold for the president. So I thought he was calling to wish me a happy Easter. <laughs> but he wasn't calling to wish me happy Easter. I had written an op-ed that week about the free press. Okay, this was April of 2019. You could find it on the Hill. And, I, and it was an open letter to the president. I said, Mr. President, the press is not the enemy of the people. And it was a six-paragraph editorial. And basically what I said in the, in the paper is that the press is designed to protect us from tyrants and corruptive forces. They're the fourth estate. They're there to check people in power. At least that's what the founders wanted. I said, but there's an ancillary benefit of the press. They teach our young children in school, at least in the United States. Your laws about the press are a little different here. But in the US, you can more or less say anything you want about political leadership. You can say more or less what you want about a public figure. And I think it's very helpful to young people because if you teach a second grader to speak and think freely, they go on and innovate and they become very creative. You can create Facebook and Google and all these different places. In China, they restrict the press, they restrict the, uh, the internet, Google, et cetera, 
two-thirds of the internet is censored, and you'll end up in a re-education camp if you say something nasty about political leadership, a result of which they have to steal our intellectual property. And you're limiting the growth of your people. And so the press has these ancillary benefits in addition to checking people in power. That was more or less what I wrote. Anyway, Trump did not like that, okay? And he got on the phone with me on Easter Sunday. I said Happy Easter, and he didn't say Happy Easter back, just so you know. And he lit me up for about six or seven solid minutes, and then he hung up the phone, basically telling me that the press was the enemy of the people, and I'm not helping him by writing that, and I gotta get on side, and uh, if I don't rail on the press, and the next time he sees me on, on the news, if I'm not railing on the press, He's going to be very upset with me, and he hung up the phone. And I didn't hear from him again. I have not talked to him since then. And was he screaming and shouting, or is it still irritating? They're, they're not yeah, they're yeah, very like bloviating, bloviating irritation, you know, not like screaming. But he did reach out. He had one of his uh, cutouts reach out to me um, after the election to see if I would have lunch with him. I said, tell him to go fuck himself. I mean, that's literally <laughs> what I said. Because how is that going to help anything? I mean, come on, you, you know, you see what you get with him. And so I, I did not have lunch with him. So you said that, so privately, is he how he appears? You know, in, or is, does he behave slightly differently? He, when he's confronted with somebody who he's attacking, or he's confronted with somebody that he has a difficult relationship with, he's like a little bit weird with that. He's like a little bit obsequious to the person when he's in their physical presence. He's very weird with that stuff. He's sort of a weird conflict avoider. Like he takes cover in Twitter and he'll take cover in remarks outside of your earshot. But when you're in his earshot, he has a, he has a difficulty with that. So even though he'd be attacking you online or to other people, to your face? Yeah, he has a hard time. Um, you can um, ask anybody that. Anybody that's worked with him, he's a little weird with that. Like he's like, has a almost like a conflict avoidance in his personality. But how, how would that express itself? They would say, Anthony, I just, I'm not saying those bad things that people who say, by the way, I think you look great and I think you're looking very good for your age, actually. I think I like your hair and I like your tie and your skin. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a fucking great impersonation, but he doesn't really talk. He doesn't really say that. So what's so <laughs> It's like a little weird ass kissing, you know what I mean? You want to take another take at it? Go ahead. Take two. And then I think you're great. You're one of the best advice I've ever had, by the way. And I think you're doing great, great work. And there are people out there that are saying bad things, and they're bad dudes. We know that they exist. We don't want to talk about them. I think you're right, one of the That's way better. I mean, that's it. <laughs> the second take was the right take. But would you say stuff like that? That's what I mean, yeah. And right, exactly. the basic stuff, bad dudes, good guys, yeah. bad hombres. All that stuff. All that stuff. And the other thing is, like, he knows he's lying. Like he, he, <laughs> it's not like he's like doesn't know that he's lying. He knows he's lying. So like, I mean, we prepared something for him. He went into the rose garden. I think the right number was like eighty-five percent. It was like a really good number. Something about the economy, and eighty-five percent of the people, I guess, had a wage increase or something. He got to the microphone of the rose garden. He said, ninety-two percent of the people have had a wage increase. <laughs> He comes back into the old office and I'm looking at him, I'm like, why'd you say 92? I mean, it's a, it sounded just so much better. Didn't it sound so much better? I'm like, yeah, but you're gonna get four Pinocchios tomorrow from the Washington Post. Why would you say that? 85 was a good enough number. Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. It sounded way better. And that's him. 
That is it. He said the other night on Fox News that the gas prices are $7.50 in California. They're probably five bucks, maybe six bucks. He doesn't give a shit. He's saying seven fifty because it sounds better to him. That's Trump. Well, Anthony, one stat I'm sure of is that a hundred percent of the people here tonight have had the most wonderful time. Oh, I don't know. I hope, I, I'm grateful to be here, guys. Thank you. Oh, thank Well, there you go. The Mooch. Oh, man. It was so good to have him there. And I genuinely think part of the, there must have been some people thinking, is he really going to turn off? I'm just, it was, I'm so delighted that he came and did it because he gave all of us such a wonderful night. And that is a night that you can obviously, uh, hopefully have just enjoyed uh, by listening to it uh, afterwards. What a charismatic individual. I mean, there were times I just felt like I was in New York. I totally forgot that I was in London. I was just like, oh my God, this feels like we're on Broadway somewhere. And then we're all going to go get a slice of pizza afterwards. But what an amazing bloke. Heartfelt, thoughtful. I mean, obviously very, very funny. And he really knows how to make an audience laugh. But you could sense it there. People really, they hung on every word. Because obviously we were getting incredible first-hand testimony about what it was like to work for Trump and what it was like in the White House. That stuff with Bannon, I don't think he's told anyone else. So that is that was fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's just such a great mixture of all these things with a style of talking and, and communicating a vocabulary that you just don't get in Britain. So it was like this, this rare being came and visited us and um, gave us the benefit of his experience and his thoughts and his analysis. And he's obviously a really heartfelt man. And uh, he just gave all of us such a special night. So what a phenomenal guest. What a treat of a podcast that I really hope you enjoyed. I'm sure it came across how it felt in the room, but the electricity was absolutely there. Which is why you've got to come and see the show live. And you can get tickets for all future shows at mattford.com slash live. Well, I think we all need a cup of tea after that. I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.